Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness, and Lord, that you've promised that for all who are trusting in Jesus, all things will work together for the good of those who are called according to your purpose. And we trust that. We look to your word this morning and give us hearts ready to receive and ears ready to hear all that you would say to us. And we ask and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You have a Bible, and I hope you do find Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28. We've been working through the book of Exodus section by section, been kind of in a larger study of something called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a, a mobile tent that the people of God had with them as they traveled through the deserts. And it was sort of supposed to represent. Yes, Sinai, but also Eden. You know, it's kind of interesting when you read the Genesis passage, it calls it the Garden of Eden, which seems to imply there's a garden, then there's Eden around it, and then there's everything else. And so the tent was structured in these three layers, and we've gotten all these instructions about how we build the tent, and we're going to kind of take a little break the text takes a little break and begins to talk about the priests, particularly what the priests wear. And we may not think this is important, but I promise when we look at it and we look at all God has to say about it, this is relevant to us as God's priests of a new and better covenant. So look with me, Exodus chapter 28. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll look at this together. The Word of God says, then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments you shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brothers, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive, receive gold, purple, and blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. They shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twine linen skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be one piece with it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen." You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. 
You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment and skilled work, and the style of the ephod you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. And he shall set in it four rows of stones, a row of sardis, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. And the second row, emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, jaconeth, and agate, and amethyst. And the fourth row, beryl, onyx, and jasper. And they shall be set in gold filigree. They shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its names for the twelve tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. You shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And you shall put the two cords of gold in two rings at the edge of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords shall attach to the two settings of filigree, and so attach it to the front shoulder piece of the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and put them at two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two gold rings and attach them in front of the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings and the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, he shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue, and it shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in a garment, so that it may not tear. On its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out, so that he does not die. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it the engraving of the signet holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban of, of, by a cord of blue, and it shall be on the front of the turban and it shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt for the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall be regularly on his forehead, so that they may be accepted before the Lord. You shall weave the coat and checkered work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. 
and he shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and his sons when they go into the tent of meeting and when they come near to the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear their guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. This is the word of God. There's a common phrase attributed to Mark Twain that says, the clothes make the man. Now, it's interesting, if you look at the history of this phrase, it actually goes all the way back to a a Latin phrase from a guy named Erasmus, who is famous for our Latin New Testaments that we have. And the point is to communicate this, what you wear communicates something about yourself. If you work somewhere and you have a uniform, They usually make it both to say that you work there and to have some function with where you work. Most of us understand there are work clothes and there are everyday clothes, and those are often not the same. You can recognize police officers, firemen, even farmers by what they wear. At the wedding, we recognize the bride by her wedding dress. That's why you know the one rule of going to a wedding is don't wear a white dress unless you're the bride. Clothing works for the sake of form and function. It clarifies what someone's job is and how they are to perform it. You know this, you don't typically attend a funeral in the clothes you run a marathon in. Clothes are worn for certain occasions and with certain goals in mind. And this was true for the priests in Israel as well. In Exodus chapter 28, we get to sort of go into the manual for priests and get to see this is what they're to wear. This is how their uniform is to look when they go about doing the work of priests. This is their holy clothes. You might even say this is their church clothes that they're going to wear when they go and serve before the Lord. But there is so much significance and symbolism in this than just a uniform. In fact, In these chapters, through the clothes the priests wear, we're going to see their job description, but we're also going to see something about our job description as Christians. You'll see in Exodus chapter 28, there are six names mentioned if you include Moses, Moses, Aaron, and then Aaron's sons. But the priesthood was much more than just individuals in the tabernacle. If you look back when you get home later to Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, right before they give the Ten Commandments, God says he's going to make the nation of Israel a kingdom of priests, meaning the whole nation was supposed to serve in a sense as the priests. And this is picked up in the New Testament, and we read this about the church. This is a, a word about you and me, and it says this in 1 Peter 2, 9. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous lights. So the description of the priesthood is not just to help us understand what they did, it's also to help us understand what we're to do as people of God, as priests. Did you know that if you're a follower of Christ today, you are a priest in the kingdom of God? 
And it also points us toward the true and better high priest, Jesus Christ, and his ministry for us. So as we look at Exodus chapter 28, there are five truths about priests that I want us to see. Five truths for us this morning. Here's the first thing. Priests worship God with beauty and glory. Priests worship God with beauty and glory. Look at verse 1. Then bring near to you, he's speaking to Moses, Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. Notice, he has particularly in mind Aaron, who's going to serve as the high priest, but he wanted all the priest's clothes to be skillfully made for the purpose of beauty and glory. Do you see that God cares about excellence? God cares about quality? God cares about beauty. This teaches us something that we're prone to forget, and that is that God is glorified through beautifully and excellently done things. Because God himself is beautiful. That's why we're going to be able to spend an eternity in his presence, and it will never grow old. Some of y'all have tasted that when you've gone on vacation, and you've seen, or maybe you live on the lake, and you ever just had those moments, you see the sunset, and you're there, and you feel like you could just be in that state forever. The beauty has just captured you. Friends, that is a taste of what eternity is like. Or maybe you've heard a song that's so true to you and just so beautifully done, you could listen to it on repeat for hours and hours and hours, and you just feel like you could continue it because you're just so caught up in it. Or maybe you've seen art that so captures your imagination, you could stand and look at it for days on end. All of that is a momentary taste of the eternal beauty of God. And of course, we get to taste in a tiny bit of the eternal God and the creation he has made. And the right response is to, yes, recognize the beauty, but then let it roll up beyond the beautiful thing to the beautiful one who made it. To recognize the artist behind the art, the creator behind the creation. Because that's one of the biggest mistakes we can make when we see something beautiful. We put all of our hope and focus and attention on the art, but then forget the artist who made it. We get all of the focus. In fact, this is one of the core sins, the Bible tells us, is losing the creator in the midst of his creation. It's looking at the stuff he's made and gone, well, this is all here for me. Nobody made this. To recognize and give thanks for creation without recognizing the creator. You know, there's an old saying you've probably heard, and you've probably heard it your whole life, that really isn't true. Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder in every sense. There are many things people call beautiful that are not beautiful. There are, and especially when the eye is not looking through the lens of faith, they've not even begun to see true beauty. 
without the lens of faith. Because beauty is found in beholding God, in believing his promises, and in living according to his word. All beauty is derived from God because God is beautiful. And Exodus 28 is a reminder that when you see beauty, you should give glory to God. But it's also an invitation to make beautiful things. God is honored when you create beautiful things. Music, art, clothes for priests. When you make a wonderful dinner or you do a great home project around the house, whatever it is that you do, if you do it excellently and beautifully and for the glory of God, friends, God is pleased and God is honored when we use our talents for him. In fact, even non-believers can make beautiful things, but the truly tragic thing is that they forgot the one who gave them that skill and whom their beauty reflects in the making of it. When you do what only you can do beautifully and skillfully, then you glorify God. Paul puts it this way, 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whatever, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So teachers, teach well for the glory of God. Those who work with your hands, when you make something well built, and it's done well and beautifully and harmonious, and it does the job it's meant to do, friends, you've done it for the glory of God. Business people, when you treat your customers or your clients or whoever it is the way you would want to be treated with fair and excellent service, then God is glorified. Moms, when you serve tirelessly and work as unto the Lord, recognizing the difficult calling God's put on your life and seeking to be faithful to the best way you can, when you live for the beauty and glory of God, God is pleased. And in fact, God put beauty right into the clothing of the priests. Look at verse 4 of Exodus 28. These are the garments you shall make. He sort of gives us a summary of everything he's going to tell us about. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brothers, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold blue and purple and scarlet yarns, the fine twined linen. Notice what it's made of. Because remember, as you walked into the temple, as you walked into the tabernacle, you had the outer court, which was very bland, right? And then you had the temple, the, the tabernacle itself was just a giant tent. Is there anywhere else that we read over the last few weeks that was covered in gold and blue and purple and scarlet? Well, the most holy place, right? The very middle of the tabernacle, that was the only place that was ornately done up in the whole tent, and the priests were clothed in the color of the most holy place. God clothes the high priest in the color of the place that they were meant to serve. We all somewhat understand this because when we watched a game this weekend, we knew who was on what team by the jersey that they wore. 
So priests are wearing the jersey of the most holy place because that's where they serve and where they work. And so God ordained the most holy place with all of this beauty and glory, and he ordained the priests in the same to sort of say, hey, they can enter in. God desires to be worshipped with beauty and glory. And so if you want an application from this text this week, let it be an invitation to you that when you recognize beauty, give glory to the beautiful one. If we get beautiful fall days, beautiful sunsets, whatever it is, when you see a job well done, give thanks for it to the one that did it and to the one who enabled them to do it. And seek in what you do as we come back from fall break to do it skillfully for the glory of God. And know that when you do it in faith, God is pleased. Priests worship God with beauty and glory. That brings us to the second thing that we see about priests in this passage. We see second, that priests bear the burdens of others on their shoulders. Priests bear the burdens of others on their shoulders. The first thing that Moses gets instruction for is what's called an ephod. An ephod. Now, we don't use terms like that in our day and age. Think of it sort of like a sleeveless vest that was going to go over his robe. Uh, the closest thing I could think of was if you've seen road workers on the side of the road, they sort of wear a vest, right, that's got yellow or orange, right? But this was sort of like that, but it was made of gold, purple, and scarlet linens. And verse 7 tells us they attach the shoulder pieces to it. And the most important thing is found in verse 9. Look what verse 9 tells us. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in order of birth. So on each of the shoulders, you've got the names of the tribes of Israel in birth order on the shoulders. And then verse 12 tells us why that matters. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. What a reminder to the priests and to the people of the nation, of his role. He bore the burdens of the people and brought them before God. Remember, the priests came before God, yes, to offer sacrifices on behalf of these people, but also to pray for them. The priests were a bridge, a go-between from the nations to God, and they figuratively carried the nation on their shoulders. People would cast their burdens on the priest so that the priest could take them off his shoulders and place them on the Lord. I want you to imagine the heavy burden of carrying everyone else's burdens. What a responsibility. And in one sense, it is a picture of what leadership in a community of faith is like, but it's also a taste of what membership in a local community of faith is meant to be. Because the responsibility that was given to select priests in Israel is now the responsibility for all God's people. Look what Paul instructs us 
Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 says this, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are to bear one another's burdens and troubles. The 12 tribes of Israel set on the shoulders of the priest, and the, and the names here today set on all of our shoulders. We have a responsibility to care for one another, and to carry others to the throne of grace and pray on their behalf. Did you know prayer exists not just for you, but for others around you? And this text is a reminder that we have a responsibility. One of the things we do when we bring new people forward and introduce them is like, hey, will you pray for them and love them and be a family of faith to them? And we put up our hands because we truly do bear burdens together. And friends, that's why small groups are so important. It can be really hard for one person or even a a small leadership team to care for people, particularly once it begins to get over about 100 or so folks. It can really be hard to effectively carry the load, and that's why getting into a small group is so important. Fewer people able to carry one another's loads together so that you're not walking alone. If you feel burdened today, there's a place for you to connect and to walk with others, to carry the load with you, and to help you carry the load and cast it on the Lord. Because here's the incredible thing. The leadership in this body doesn't have an access to God that you can't have. The priesthood is no longer consolidated to just a few, but spread to any and all who call upon the name of the Lord. We don't have certain people with God on speed dial. If you're a Christian, he's in all of your contacts. We don't have priests in this body. We've got a body of priests who can carry the load to the Lord. But are we doing so? Do we often just allow a small few to carry the load? Or are all of us caring for one another in this body? In Christ, we are all priests, and thus we can call on God and intercede on behalf of others. If you are a Christian and a part of this body, the burdens of others are also your burdens. And we have a responsibility to care for and pray for one another priests bore the burdens of others on their shoulders. And that was what the ephod taught them that went over their robe. But there was a piece that went over the ephod that we're going to see called the breast piece. And the breast piece is here to teach us a third truth about priests. Third, that priests bear the judgments of God on their hearts. Priests bear the judgments of God on their heart. He spends from verse 15 to 30 talking about this breast piece on the very front of the ephod. It was a colorful piece with many stones, and many of the stones are are considered precious stones. The prophet Ezekiel describes many of the stones he lists there as being from the Garden of Eden, precious and glorious. And now, Some translations call this a breastplate. I think that's not a helpful way to think about it because when I think of plate, I think of something made of metal, kind of like a knight would have over top of them. This was really more like a pouch on the front of the outfit. It says it's doubled, so God gave them pockets 
praise God, right? Right there on the front of their outfits. And the breastplate and the breastpiece contained 12 precious stones symbolizing the tribe of Israel. They're on their chest, names on their shoulders, names on their chest, right? They brought the people before God because these were the people on their hearts. What a picture. And then we get the specific reason for the breastpiece in verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So he bears them on his heart, and then it says, and in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. So it's called the breastpiece of judgment, and he puts in the pocket stones called Urim and the Thummim. Now, I read plenty of people this week, and nobody exactly knows what these rocks were, what exact stones that they were. We do know that they were likely used by way of contrast. They get used later when the people of God sort of have an A or B decision. They would sort of throw the rocks out and see where they landed. Now, I don't think that's an instruction for you to go home and make decisions regarding rocks, right? These were often done when the priest had prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and God had not given a clear answer to them. But they would use them to discern decisions for the body because it's a reminder that the priests were mediators, but they were also teachers, The priests were there to apply God's word to a particular situation to make judgments that would align with God's word. In fact, the word for judgment here is the same word used back in Exodus 21.1 where he gives the people the judgments or the rules for the nations to follow. And the priests were here to make sure the people properly understood and applied the word of God. And the breastpiece was over his heart. It's the idea of God's word literally being right there. Inside his heart. The law being on his heart. A teacher who knows God's word deeply. A picture of people having God's word written on the inside to guide their lives. And here's what's incredible. What's symbolized for the priests becomes a reality for us in Jesus in the new covenant. Let me show you this in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 33. Jeremiah is giving a prophecy here of something that would come after Jeremiah's day. And he says this, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their people and and I shall be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. See it, in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit dwells within us and God has written his law on our hearts. We have something better than the priests and the faithful in the Old Testament did. We have the judgments of God no longer written on tablets of stone, but written right here. 
Jesus describes this experience as being born again. Getting new life and transformation, it doesn't, mean that, that it, it doesn't mean perfection overnight, but it does mean that the Spirit of God has entered into the equation and that changes everything. In Christ, we are able to understand and do all that God requires. We're able to understand and apply the Word of God. The, the understanding of the Word isn't left to the guy who might preach it on Sunday. You know, you're able to read and understand and draw conclusions and teach other people. It's no longer left to a select few. All of us who are in Christ figuratively wear the breast piece of judgment. We're able to teach others how to know God and grow in him. Friends, if you've been born again, it's not going to happen overnight, but God has equipped you and qualified you to serve and teach others to grow in that ability, and to better discern for others how they are to live. This brings us to the fourth thing about the priests. We see fourth, the priests meditate on the person of God. So yes, the priests were called to teach, but the priests didn't just wake up one day and have all the answers. You know, you can put on the priest's clothes and yet still got a lot to learn about priesting, right? You can be born again, but you still have a responsibility to grow and to become more of the person God would call you to be. Remember, the clothing of the priest was to remind them of their task as a mediator between unholy people and a holy God. And everything about the outfit was to make them reflect, to stop and get them to think about the monumental responsibility. Think about the instructions with the robe. Look at verse 31. You shall make the robe of ephod all of blue, and it shall have an opening for the head in the middle with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in a garment, so that it may not tear. On its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarn around its hem with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. He says, hey, it's a blue robe, exactly like you'd imagine. On its ends were pomegranates, likely symbols of fruitfulness, and then there were bells to tell other people when they were serving and also to tell them whether they were alive or dead in the presence of God. It's like, okay, the priest is still in there. See the, the warning in verse 35 that all of this needed to be done so that they might not die in the presence of a holy God. There's a, a popular idea you'll hear a lot of preachers share. The high priest, many, many talk about him having a rope tied around his leg, right? So that he'd enter in and you could hear him jingling away, and then if the jingling stopped, they needed to get him out. You didn't just send somebody in there. You had to pull him out right now. I haven't found that anywhere in the Bible or any Jewish source that I could find, but it's very possible they did that, right? Because they needed to get the guy out of there. But just consider the bells. I just want you to consider they're, you're waking up for your priestly duty. You're walking in and you just hear the jingling, and you're like, this is a reminder that I'm still alive. 
It's a reminder every step you go of your role of going before a holy God on behalf of an unholy people. It reminds us that God cannot be approached casually and that he is holy, holy, holy. Every part of the close was to make the priest meditate on the character of God. Now, I'm not talking about meditation like, um, empty your mind, just kind of let it. No, 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 no. The, the biblical definition of meditating is you empty your mind of untrue things, but then you got to fill it with true things. You don't want a fully open mind because then your brain falls out, right? Your brain's meant to latch on to something. And God says that we're to meditate on the truth. In fact, I just want you to consider again the high priest, you're going into, into work, you're hearing the bells ring, who you're about to approach. And did you notice something else missing on the outfit? Do you notice in our day, an outfit's not complete until you got shoes on. But friends, they don't have shoes. They're walking barefoot, and maybe they look down and they see, oh, I'm, I'm going on holy ground. I can't even wear shoes here. So the thought floods back to their mind again. They're coming into the presence of the holy God. And in fact, all the way from their feet up to their head, they've got a reminder of the holiness of God. Look at verse 16. You shall make a plate of, full of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on a turban by a cord of blue, and it shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear the guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall be regularly on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord from their toes up with the jingling bells, even up to their forehead, is a reminder that God is holy. And in order to be a faithful servant, they needed to regularly meditate on the truth of God. Because to properly understand God's holiness would be to produce holy living and holy worship in their life as a priest. And friends, meditation does the same thing for us as well. Psalm chapter 1 speaks about meditating. And friends, this isn't just a promise for a few. This is a promise for you. Look at Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man or the woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Bible reading and meditation and deep thinking on it is not just for a few. It is for all of us who desire to live the blessed life and desire to live the way that God would have us live. All of us have the responsibility to fill our minds with the word of God. All of us have the responsibility to be able to teach and communicate God's word, and that means we're all to study and to know. Theology is not just for the pastor. Theology is for all of life. And let me tell you, we all have a theology, whether you've been to seminary or not. We all have beliefs about God and his word and the world. The question is whether it's informed by his word or by the world. 
All of the Bible is meant to be known and applied for all God's people. All of this info about Exodus 28 isn't just for Bible nerds like me. It's written for all of us so that all of us might reflect on it and seek to live it out. As priests of a new and better covenant, we must be meditators on the word of God. Not just for our sake, but for the sake of others. So fellow priests, how are we doing at meditating on God's word? And I'm not just talking about reading it, though that's a start. You can't meditate on it if you don't read it. But the real question is, has it read you? The Bible is one of the only books that reads you as it reads it. It transforms and confirms and does a work in your life and your heart. Let me encourage you today, if you're not daily feeding your mind with truth, a simple way to do that is a daily Bible reading and prayer. We can find you a plan if you'd like to find one to get started. The Bible app has quite a few. Start anywhere, but dive in. For others, it may mean to make a commitment to be at church every Sunday, to just take that next step beyond just reading, but being taught and thinking, particularly on some of these harder sections. That's one of the reasons we do verse-by-verse preaching. It makes us think about things we've never thought about before. For others, it may mean getting in a small group to discuss and apply and grow in their knowledge. For others, it may mean buying other books and resources to help them grow. But the question to consider is, What step do I need to take in order to better meditate on the Word of God? Because words meditated on becomes words lived out for our sake and for the sake of others. And this brings us to our final point about the priests this morning. Fifth, and finally, priests minister before God on behalf of others. Priests minister before God on behalf of others. Look at verse 39. You shall weave the coat in checker work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps, and you shall make them for glory and for beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him, and you shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hip to the thigh, and they shall be on Aaron and his sons when they go up into the tent of meeting, and when they come near to the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and his offspring before him. God gives them instructions all the way down to the underwear that they're to wear. He says, wear long johns. And if God cares about that much detail, then friends, remember, God cares about you. God is a God of details. We get instructions of a coat, a turban, a sash, the covering underneath it all. And we may think, why is he telling us this? That seems really weird to start telling us about what underwear the priests need to wear. But in these days with the people of Israel, this would have been significant because in the ancient world, Let me say it this way, temples would have been equivalent to nightclubs in the ancient world of that day. People liked to do other things when they came in to worship their various deities. And they often would have come into those temples um, dressed for what they might want to do. 
And so it's interesting that the temple of God is not that way. The temple of God desired, God desired that in his temple, their nakedness would be covered. God says, I'm not going to have you worship me as the world worships their pagan gods around you. Don't do what they did. I desire holiness, not nakedness. I think this also would bring their minds back to the garden. Because remember, when Adam was sent out of the presence of God, he was covered. So even the priests, even the high priest, had to enter into God's presence covered because they had sinned themselves. They could enter in to minister, to serve, and to pray, and to offer imperfect sacrifices on behalf of others. They did all of this to be a representative between God and his people. Their whole world was others-focused, to bear the burdens of their community and on their hearts and on their shoulders that others might know and serve the one true God. It's important for us to see that we exist for others as well. We don't just exist for ourselves. We exist to serve God and to serve others, to not just gather for the sake of gathering, but to grow that we might better serve together. And it's also a deeper significance because it points us toward a greater and better high priest. Let me finish here by showing you this. Because there is one high priest who could come before the presence of God unclothed. There was one who truly was the blessed man of Psalm chapter 1 who could meditate on the word and live it out without sin. There was one high priest who entered into a structure, not a structure called the most holy place, but into the substance, into heaven itself. There was one high priest who could offer an eternal sacrifice, bear your burdens in his body and in his heart, naked and beaten, and he would do it on a cross. The colorful robe would be ripped away by the mockers, and he would be naked, bleeding, and bruised. And that high priest's name is Jesus Christ. He was a better sacrifice, he's a better mediator, and he is a perfect go-between between us and God. The God-man could bridge the gap between God and man. The perfect high priest died as a perfect sacrifice in order to restore us to right relationship with God through faith. And that wasn't the end of the story. He didn't stay dead. He rose on the third day. He ascended into heaven. And today he stands in heaven as a high priest on your behalf. When the apostle John got a vision of glory, this is what he saw. Then I turned and saw the voice of one who was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, there was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a gold sash around his chest. John looked and saw Jesus Christ wearing the clothes of a priest because he is a true and a better high priest for his people. I don't have time to get here, so I'd encourage you, when you go home today, look at Hebrews chapter 7 and John chapter 17, because the Bible tells us Jesus didn't just die and rise, but he ascended into heaven, and right now, if you're one of his followers, he is praying for you. You want to talk about having a prayer partner. 
and he is lifting his nail-scarred hands to pray for you, to minister on your behalf. He bears your burdens on his shoulder, and he holds you in his heart. And if you doubt that for a second, you only need to look at his hands and his feet. Today, if you don't have confidence that Jesus is a priest on your behalf, you can come to know him today through faith. You can call on him right where you are to be Lord and Savior, and he'll meet you there today. But if you do know him as your Savior, as your great high priest, then he's enlisted you and consecrated you to be a priest in this community. You were saved for more. That's what Exodus 28 is here to teach us. The clothes make the man. The clothes of the priest have set them apart for their role, and Jesus has clothed us in even better, in perfect righteousness and in the power of the Spirit that we might represent him to others, to minister and serve and proclaim that others might know. And the invitation of this text is to say, let's get dressed and get to work. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the clothing of the priests that teaches us about so much more than just what the priests did in a tent in the Middle East many thousand years ago. But Lord, you gave it to us to teach us about the calling you have on our life, that you intended for mankind to live as priests in your presence, but we chose to wander into sin. You sent a greater and truer high priest in our place, so that we might be restored to that calling and live it out as representatives on your behalf. Today, we bear so many burdens on our shoulders and the scriptures invite us to cast our cares upon the Lord for you care for us. So today, we take those burdens off of our shoulders and out of our hearts and we lay them at your feet. Thank you for sending Jesus to be stripped of his priestly robes, to become not only the priest, but the sacrifice that we might be entered in and that we might have a prayer partner in heaven who is so serious about our good and our glory that he would die for it. So Lord, give us the confidence out of that to live as you would have us to live. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God is
benediction that sends us out today into the world as priests of the kingdom of God. The benediction from God's word, Revelation chapter 1, 5 and 6. Now to him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.